Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we continue our series of special episodes featuring highlights from panel discussions during BIO's virtual annual conference in May 2021. The session, The Art of Interviewing, featured biographers John Brady, Claudia Dreyfus, and Brian J. Jones. The panel was moderated by BIO's own James McGrath Morris. Welcome, everybody, to The Art and Technology of Interviewing, How to Woo Interview Subjects, How to Set Ground Rules, How to Secure Permissions, which is something I get a lot of emails from people asking me about, how to get them to think, to remember afresh, how to record, transcribe, and store your interviews. We could go on for a long time, and we've got three really terrific people to talk to about this. So what I've asked each of them to do is, I'm going to um, ask them, beginning with Claudia first, to talk a little bit about how interviews connect with their work. Now, after each of them have said a little bit, I will then try to lead them to share with us some of the brilliant and practical things they have learned. So, Claudia, how have uh, interviews uh, been with your work? Well, I'm mostly known as an interviewer, and I'm actually the person who brought the Q&A format to the New York Times in 1992. They hadn't run them before, but Jack Rosenthal, who was the editor of the Sunday Magazine, asked me to come over from Playboy, where I had been doing interviews, and start an interview feature, something like the Playboy interview, in the Sunday magazine. And then other sections picked it up. But even before Playboy, I was doing interviews because as a kid, as a wee snootling in the middle of another century, I wanted to be a playwright. And interviewing, Q&As, is the closest thing in journalism to writing plays. I mean, you're creating improvisational plays, dramas, as you do these interviews. So I've been doing these kinds of pieces since the 60s. So you develop some skills and some insight over the years. So like biographers, one of the things I do before I do an interview is I try to find out as much about the person as I can before I go in there. Because you only have a few moments really to establish a rapport with somebody you've never met and somebody who may be over interviewed and who is cursed with uh, fame and uh, the distortions that fame often give. And um, you've got to establish some kind of relationship very, very quickly. So the way I do it mostly is I try to figure out a good lead opening question because as the cliche goes, you only have one chance to make a first impression. So I go in very, very prepared, almost like a lawyer, knowing the answers to some of the questions I'm going to ask. And I structure my questions and my line of questioning before I go in. But mostly, like a, a biographer, I'm trying to figure out well in advance what makes that person tick, what is the driving forces in their life? What is the narrative that I want to try to get out of the person? Uh, what insights? And sometimes I'm really wrong in my 
projection and thoughts about this person, but sometimes I'm really right. And if they feel seen by you, they may overcome all these impediments. I think my role is to get people to tell their stories. And I think that's a lot like the role of biographers. And let me say this about technology. I think interviewing is the one aspect of journalism that technology matters the least. What matters is who you are as a person, how you can establish a rapport, what kind of lines of questioning you ask, how intelligent they sound, and how you can get that person relaxed enough to tell their stories. And that's not always easy because people are often taught to think in cliches, often thought to think in sound bites. And we live in a world where it's changed a lot interviewing over the years. People I would interview in the 70s and 80s didn't come with an entourage. Very often they do now and they come with people who've trained them not to say anything. They want the publicity, but they don't want to tell you anything that matters. So um, I love learning about people and what makes them tick. I know that sounds like a cliche, but that's what I do. And um, I also love the fact that there's a degree of performance to this, that it's not just silently observing, being sort of that Joan Didion kind of figure that just sits on the sidelines and takes notes and sitting. I like being active and a part of the story. I've done two books on interviewing. And there you have also the guru of interviewing here, John Brady, whose textbooks I use in my classes at Columbia sometimes. But people think interviewing is easy. It's very hard. It's both the same and different than what you guys do as biographers. I think the performance element is different. So folks, ask me questions. And speaking of questions, folks, if you have questions for any of these panelists or for all of them, please enter them in the chat room at the bottom and we'll be saving time at the end uh, where I will ask these questions of our panelists. Um, you've given us a lot to start with, Claudia. I've already taken a couple notes that we'll get back to. I'm going to shift around now to Brian and um, having observed Brian at his work, I know what kinds of interviews he does, but I'll let him speak for himself. <laughs> well, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of interviewing primarily through lessons I learned the hard way sometimes on some of these. First thing, and I, I think this gets to Claudia's opening salvo on this, is I always go in and try to treat it as a conversation, not an interview. The minute they feel like it's a police procedural, they're gonna shut down. So it, it is a matter of making them feel comfortable and that research when you go, before you go in there is absolutely key. If your subject is well known, and I see Danny in here and Danny's got an interview, you know, he gets to interview some of the big hitters as well, people you can find information on, um, you know, read the interviews they've done, try to find out their own resumes and so on. There's no greater feeling as an interviewer when you start asking questions and your subject goes, wow, you really did your research. I love when people say that. So I think that's one of the ways you start to sort of bring them into your corner as well as when you already have indicated them, you have an interest in them, you did your research on them. I think your subjects really warm up and respond to that when you do that. So speaking of shutting up, you don't want your subject to shut up, but please be sure you do. You have to know when to shut up. And even Robert Caro tells stories about writing in his own notes, S, which means shut up, stop talking as your subject is, is speaking. Nothing makes me crazier. I get so angry with myself when I go back and I listen to my interviews and discover that I stepped on someone's line right as they were getting to it. 
The hardest part of interviewing is be willing to let there be dead air. You don't have to fill every space. Let them talk, let them, let them stew sometimes, let them creep into that dead space. A lot of times something will come out, don't automatically feel the need to jump in there and fill it, uh, which is what I always, well, not always anymore, but I was always so afraid if I didn't start talking, they were gonna throw me out and say the interview was over. Another really- They might. They, they might. Um, another really important thing on this, and, and yeah. again, Claudia talked a little bit about this uh, in prepping, is I usually go in with some questions that I actually know the answers to, but I ask them anyway, because part of what you need to do is understand that everyone has an agenda. Everyone has a narrative they want to convey. Everyone has a narrative. Maybe everyone has a side. They have someone they're trying to protect. When I was writing the Jim Henson biography, he had a widow and five kids. Every kid had an agenda. One of them was protecting the mother. Another one was you know, more interested in, in advancing the arts. Another one was all about his past. So when you go in, you really have to know what everyone's agenda is. Um, be willing to read between the lines on that. Be willing to find out who's on whose side. And a lot of times it's gonna take a lot of interviews to get to that. But I do a, a lot of times go in there with questions. You know, it, it's my placebo almost, or, or my, you know, it's my way I go in there and find out let me ask a question or the answer to and see how they give me the answer. See what their spin is on my answer. Be wary of people saying, I just want the truth to be known because it will be a truth, but it may not be the truth. So I, again, I always go in there with, with a control. Finally, I would say be both rigid and flexible when you go in, have your game plan, have your questions down in advance, uh, know where you want to go, but don't let that restrict you. As soon as somebody's off to the races, don't try to reel them back in necessarily and get back to your questions as they're laid out. A lot of times the stories go places you're not even expecting. So again, be rigid in your plan, have an attack plan, but if it goes off the rails, don't panic. Um, a lot of times that's one of the best things that can happen to you. And, and then I guess the last thing I will say, well, I'll get to the tech a little bit. I think we're all going to have different interpretations of what we think is the best approach on tech. I'm old school, I use old recorders and I walk in with two, you know, in case I miss something, I've got it. I think the biggest thing I would say is be sure the tech is not in the way. Be sure you're absolutely comfortable with your tech because the worst thing that can happen is break up your interview by saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I gotta change the tape. We don't have to really change tape anymore, but, or, you know, or, or a phone call comes in on your cell phone while you're recording somebody on your, on your voice memos. So, so I think the main thing is use whatever tech works for you. I'm always that way with organizing whatever works for you, um, but just be sure you're absolutely comfortable and get it out of the way. You do not want the tech interfering with your conversation. On listening to Claudia and Brian, I can testify to one of the points to start off with that they made, and then we'll go on to others. In establishing your relationship with your person you're interviewing, doing the research does provide dividends right away. And so what I always try to do is I try to find something interesting in their past that connects me to them. So rather than saying, you know, I see you've, read, you've written 12 books, I might say something like, you know, in the second book you wrote, you talked about walking across Grand Central Park. That's always been a favorite of mine. They're flattered by the fact that you know their work more than just listing. And then there's something to connect on. They might suddenly start talking. And I, when I do an interview, I'm never, unless when I start off life, I was in radio and time was limited. I'm never in a rush. So getting a long conversation going where they might say, well, let's go and brew another cup of coffee before we get started really helps warm up. So I think from the, the two of you, establishing your credibility and all of that is really important. We all step on the person we're talking to, maybe not Claudia, who has the most ex experience of, of us, but same thing, I listen to the tapes. 
The one thing I've noticed is when I've been interviewed is I can tell a lot about the interviewer and it diminishes my willingness to be interviewed is if they have a very set agenda of questions. So you say something like, you know, I gave up beating my wife last week and they asked me next, looking at a piece of paper, what's your favorite way of cooking pumpkin stew? You know, this is not really a, a good interview. And Brian's point about trying to establish this as a conversation, not as a police interview. Claudia, your Q&As, they knew the Q&As were going to appear, yeah. they, whereas my Q&As are not going to appear. Only maybe two quotes from that hour-long interview are going to be in the book. How did that change your way of interviewing? Well, they want the publicity in general. And I try not to interview people who don't want to be interviewed, who are reluctant. Certainly, when I was doing these interviews for the New York Times, and now I do them for the New York Review of Books, my feeling is you don't have to be in the New York Times or the New York Review of Books if you don't want to be cooperative, if you don't want to sit down and have an exchange, if you just want the publicity, I don't want to be there. So I say no to people whose publicists have pitched me. I read a lot of previous interviews and I'll say to publicists, can you send me some audio interviews? Because you can always tell from radio stuff, whether or not these people can talk. We need words, we need storytelling. And if they are gonna talk in sound bites, or if they're gonna just tell us these set little patterns, then I don't want it. And I think that makes a big difference. You know, it's sort of like love. If you're not desperate, you get lots of it. And um, I'm not desperate. You wanna have an interview in the New York Times appear in the New York Times? Great. Let's talk. Well, what Brian and 50 of us run across is not bad as the other problem. I mean, there's, I, there's some interviews for the book I finished where I, it took me a year to finally persuade them to sit down and talk to me. And that's the common problem that I think, you know, you've got the New York Times and New York Review of Books as your reward. Brian, for instance, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the interviews you had a hard time getting and how did you get them? What tips would you give others of us? Well, so, so first of all, it, sometimes it's really hard because, for example, when I was writing about George Lucas, he's smart enough to make anyone who ever worked for him sign a non-disclosure agreement. So, you know, it was really hard to find even somebody who would have been a janitor that had worked for him who could talk on the record. That said, there were people I knew who knew him professionally who hadn't worked for him but had worked with him, who I actually had pretty good luck. Um, I could direct message them on LinkedIn. Uh, I found people that way. Uh, LinkedIn is actually a pretty good resource for finding people that don't always necessarily think they're going to be found. And a lot of times I would send them a note and tell them I was going to, and the response I would get back would just be a phone number. They wouldn't say anything else. They would just send me a phone number and then I could call them and we could have our conversation either on or off the record. So you, you could find sources in, in surprising places, but you know, people who don't want to talk or can't talk sometimes th that's like looking through the bars of the cell that you're just never going to get to them. But a lot of times all it takes is one to break it open. When people find out you've talked with a certain person on the record, that can open a whole lot of doors. Um, this is one, again, one of the weird things about George Lucas. I talked with George Lucas's college roommate who was actually the guy who directed the movie Grease. I talked with him for quite a long time and I saw someone ask a question about doing it on Zoom. I did this back on Skype back in the day because I think he was in London at the time. But I talked with him for like two hours. And once I had him, I could at least go to people and say, I already talked with his old college roommate and I talked with his first producer, I at least had some stuff in pocket 
that makes some of those doors, if not open all the way, they creak open enough that sometimes they'll say, send me five questions and I'll answer them in writing. I'm not going to talk with you, but you can, you can back in to some of these people that are hard to get. Some of them you're never going to get and you just have to you know, be okay with that. But other times um, if you can get one big one or one that looks close enough to your subject, it actually, it opens a lot of doors for you to move in. Yeah. Well, it helps to have a rabbi too. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I get to hard to get to people through uh, people they know. Everybody is like two degrees of separation from anybody else anyway. And if you drill far enough, you can get somebody to, to reach them and then introduce you for them. I think the question is, how do we get hard to get people? Well, you just keep trying and you find different ways. It's a little like being a burglar trying open doors. I'm going to pause the conversation because John is back with us. I have, can you hear me? Before we lose you, we want to get some of your wisdom. I'll speak quickly. I have been bouncing here and I have no idea. I have my tech assistant, also known as my daughter, Tess, in the room. Uh-oh. So this is, if you're interviewing people, this is the tech folks you don't bring with you. To interview I want to tell you that I was interviewing John Dean for New York Review a couple of years ago, and my tech just went completely. And so I asked him, is there any chance you've recorded this? And there I am asking Watergate John Dean if he was surreptitiously recording. <laughs> and I said, but I really wish you had. He suggested that I had the wrong carrier. Kitty uh, Kelly tells a great story about almost getting, I can't remember who she was interviewing, Jamie, you might know this. She almost had the good she thought on Hoffa and she always brought a cameraman with her and her cameraman got so excited that the question was gonna get answered. He plopped down on the couch next to the guy and all of a sudden brought him back into the moment <laughs> and ruined Kitty's rhythm. Uh, and he never answered the question. All of a sudden he realized he was about to give up the goods and stopped. So uh, when you talk about entourages, Claudia, sometimes it's your own entourage that can get in your way as well. Ooh, well, you want to do the interview in a room where it's only you and the source. You want to clear the entourage as much as you can. Great questions. And I just want the questioners to know that I will, I'm watching the clock so I can get your questions answered. Uh, some of them are things that we are answering on the way, but I do want to focus a little more on getting that interview that it's hard to get. And share, as a former journalist, one of the things I've done is, you know, you, you interview as many people as you can, which, of course, builds interest among the one that's not being interviewed. Oh, John, you're back? I'm going to speak very quickly. Okay. Give us some words of wisdom, John. I am an a, a old journalist and editor who's become a biographer along the way. And I have found that the best way to arrive at a, a source of subject... It's best if your subject is dead. If your subject is still among the, as I say, on the right side of the grass, it can be an elusive search and it might be unsatisfactory or unsuccessful. I did a biography of Lee Atwater in the late 90s that I'm now revisiting and, and revising and updating. Very topical, trendly, we, we think. Atwater had a, a method of dealing with the press, the media, uh, when someone wanted to do a story about him, he would give them 10 or 12 names and say, before we sit down and have a real conversation, he said, with a Southern draw, he said, talk to these people. They know me. And then, of course, the writer would make the rounds and talk to all the people who would report in to Lee. So that by the time the journalist sat down with Lee, there was probably more. 
Oh my God, that was a cliffhanger. But you know what he's saying is a good technique for interviewing anyway. Maybe not with Liat Water, who's trying to get sort of intel on you and who you might be. But I think doing pre-interviews is a tremendously useful technique. And I often say if I'm doing a long piece, who are your friends? Who could I talk to? And that really paid off when I once interviewed the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, John Shalishvili. And by talking to his friends and his brother, I learned that he had learned English from John Wayne movies. And that kind of gave me a clue to how to structure the interview. My central theme was kind of asking if he was a man of Europe or of America. And we connected on that because both experiences really shape him. But it was those pre-interviews that gave me the key. So I would say when interviewing anyone but Lee Atwater is probably a great technique. To finish the point about reluctance, one of the lines of journalists, and I used to use it too, that you do, is that your last final appeal to them, you know, the walls are up and they say they won't be interviewed, you say, but you don't want to miss out on having your point of view represented in this book. Um, your view will not be in this book. Oh, nice job. So, so get back. I, I don't mean to intrude, but I have to kind of hit and run here. I have found as a biographer that if the subject is dead, you do a different kind of interview. You're chronicling information and insight. Those are the two eyes of interviewing. You are interviewing someone to get information or you want insight to the subject. And in all cases, you want to offset any anxiety that they have. When I'm doing research on a subject, whether it's Lee Atwater, or believe it or not, I'm working on a book about Marilyn Monroe now. Has there been a, been a book about Marilyn? I don't know. This could be groundbreaking, I realize. <laughs> but in any case, I'm talking with people, and I'm in archives that have not been seen before. And I'm finding that they have an attitude or an angle or a bit of information or an experience with uh, Marilyn or with the, the people who would have you believe Marilyn is this or Marilyn is that. There's so much distortion that you have to work through that I tell them, well, first of all, this is what I'm doing. Secondly, here's what I'm interested in. If you can help me, if you can give me some guidance, I use that word, give me some guidance. I don't need information. I don't need anecdotes. I need guidance. And then I will provide them with the topics that I'm interested in discussing with them. I don't give them questions. I send them a, an outline of topics to discuss. And then I call them or we email, we go back and forth and we agree to an interview. And I tell them, I'm gonna record the interview. I'm gonna make a transcript of it. I'm gonna send you the transcript and we'll go through it for an accuracy check. And this puts all the anxiety aside. And they know that they're gonna be able to speak freely, openly, and that they'll have a kind of a, a review at the finish line for accuracy. Now, when I send the transcript to them, by the way, there's an awful lot of clerical work in this and I have to do it myself. I have had transcription services and so forth, but I find that you have to go through it anyway because there's so often one word, one letter can make a, all the difference and you only you can catch it and you catch the tone of their voice. So I send them the, I, this is all done by email. In any case, and then we go through it. We make corrections. Most of them are very nominal. I have follow-up questions. If they're concerned about something, if there's anxiety, they made a mistake, I want to correct it on the spot. This is not to get PR-type answers. This is to get accurate, informative 
information that uh, becomes a document. And I can use these documents and move them around, take excerpts in different parts of the book that I'm working about. I can also use them to go up against other transcripts from other sources that are completely different from what they saw. It's like an accident report. Three or four people see an event. They all make a file court and it's, it's, uh, it's like the Alexandria Quartet or Rashomon or any, any, any examples. So you have to do some refereeing and you know who the good sources, the reliable sources are after a while. A lot of them are not reliable. A lot of them have been telling stories that are a little bit pat and get a little bit more embroidered over the years. So this is my, my approach under these circumstances in these times. Um, for the Atwater book, I did over 200 interviews, but I did them in a period immediately after his death, while the information was fresh and reasonably current. Uh, accurate, who knows? You're dealing with politics, and it's like dealing with anybody in entertainment. Publicity, promotion, um, bullshit, it's all part of the, the process. Hard to separate fact from fiction. And some of these people believe the fictions that they have been telling. Mm -hmm. So they do it with sincerity. <laughs> Thank God for the word allegedly. I mean, we, <laughs> we have ways of uh, couching information that is, uh, there's no way to be sure that, that what you have is, is accurate. But the search continues. The search continues. I try to focus on conflict areas, on uh, meaningful events in the person's life. Um, I have found that you have to make it clear to the subject that you have done your homework, that you know a lot about the subject before you even begin. Claudia says the first question, same thing. I did a, an interview with um, William Goldman, the, the screenwriter. My first question to him, because he was very elusive. He did not want to do the interview. I found out later he doesn't do books on well, we'll resume our conversation amongst us while John's techie reconnects. Um, John mentioned something interesting about sharing the transcript with the person who's been interviewed. So I'd like to hear from Claudia and Brian your feelings about doing that. Well, it depends. My experience certainly with Hollywood people or, or politicians is that if you sh share that material, they will try to change it almost always. So you don't want to do that. But there are times, for instance, if language isn't very clear. In general, I would say no, but there are times when you need to for accuracy. If English isn't their first language, uh, you might need to do it. In general, I try to make my sources feel like the story we're doing together is a collaborative project. I'm not trying to get you. I'm trying to get your story. But I think giving people manuscripts or transcripts, it's fraught with problems. I think you have to figure out whether or not the person is going to take back what they say, and most likely they'll try to. I think you can also say to them, which I sometimes do on occasions when I do this, is I will let you see this material, but you have to promise me you're not going to change anything except to correct it when it's wrong. And then I have to bargain with them when they try. Ryan, what's been your experience? So I only, I've only done it on one book because then after that, I sort of took the Carl point of view, which was nonsense. <clears throat> you know, don't, don't let them see it. So I, I didn't do it. After that, I, I stopped sharing interviews. Uh, but I actually didn't have any problems with it. The one I, when I shared the transcripts was on the Jim Henson book. I'm hoping it was because once I got done with the interview, people felt good enough about me. They didn't think that I had some sort of weird 
I was going to write some sort of takedown that when I sent them the transcripts to review, most of the people, what it is, they went in and they would say, I got this person's name wrong. It was actually this person. Like they were correcting it for fact more, you know, they were doing that kind of correction more than like crossing out long passages saying, please don't quote this. I didn't have anybody do that. And then I had one person who went through and knocked out every time they would say, you know, they would scratch those out. But I didn't actually have any problems with that. But I only did that one time. Like I said, after that, I borrowed that page out of Carl's book. And I just like, they, they knew they were on the record when I spoke with them and I'm going to go with it. I make a distinction between public and private citizens in the sense that when I interviewed Robert Redford for this book, I wasn't going to send him a transcript. Right. He was enough to know if he says something stupid, that's his problem. But when I've talked a person who's never been in the media into being interviewed, I tell them part of the arrangement is you'll see what you said because they, they've never experienced being in the media. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Public versus private. That, that's, a, that's a great differentiation. When you send these transcripts to people, uh, is this when you deal with permissions and how do you deal with permissions? Yeah, John, did, were you oh, able to hear the question? Well, when you you have to separate that manuscript from transcript. A transcript to me is like a deposition. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's strictly that person's take on a topic. I share it. This is a collaborative. We're going to get things right. This is what you have to say. And then I use it wherever I want in the manuscript. Nobody sees that except the editor. What do you do about getting permissions for your interviews? If they've said they are agreeing to this interview and they know what yeah. it's for... That's permission. That's the first thing. Yeah. It's understood. I, I, I don't think that that is an, uh, an issue unless you get into the area of copyright or something that has uh, conflicting um, considerations, legal, legal ownership elsewhere, that sort of thing. But I, I don't see that's a, a meaningful issue. And it's becoming one because when I was a reporter, I never needed permission because it was implicit. But from Hachette to Harper's to University Presses, I find editors increasingly asking for releases for the interviews that we've done. So oh, okay. I developed one that I send to other people that they sign so that you know, it says I'm going to be quoting you in a book. Well, I did that for Craft of the Screenwriter. They all had to sign off on, on permission. And I, th I think that the PR department increasingly leans in on, on all of these, these uh, journalistic efforts. So we have that, and that's always growing. Uh, the PR people, first word in press is PR, as they say, and they have to yeah. justify their fat salaries. I think we can, we can stipulate that public relations people are very often the bane of the universe um, <laughs> and go on from there. I mean, they don't help the process, even when you mean well. Uh, I want to talk about uh, one time that I do show my sources the material. And that is when I'm interviewing PhD Nobel laureate physicists. And I really don't understand some of the science that they're talking about. In that case, I think it's a good idea to show them what's there to make sure that I don't mischaracterize what they have to say. So the bottom line is you have to think of each case point by point. And some, in some situations, it's appropriate and others not. We've been uh, swamped with really good questions. So with your permission, I'm gonna ask you to answer these questions, but keep your answers brief so that we can get through them. So quickly, how do you feel about Zoom interviews versus in-person? Is there a big difference? And what might that difference be? I see Claudia is nodding, so go to it. 
in my classes, uh, I often, my students always say, can we do a telephone? We have an assignment where they do a Q&A and then when they don't do it well, they have to do the same person over as a profile. And people think interviews are really easy and they, they're going to suss them and then they do them and it's really hard. But the long point of the, the, the story is that they want to do them by phone. My st students in general and students now, the idea of anything in person is so foreign to how they've been taught and how they work. And we have to kind of force them back to getting original material and talking to people. And I always say, you can't do it by phone. You can't do it by internet. And then the crisis happened and everybody was sent off into our own caves and told to survive. Well, I have found that Zoom is not bad for an interview and in some cases better. For instance, you, you can get to almost anyone you want by Zoom. It's much harder in person. It, involves much more commitment and there's a kind of intimacy to Zoom that it's like learning how to be on TV. You have to learn it a little bit but it does work. Telephone interviews are the pits and my students want to do internet interviews and I'll say absolutely not because uh, you, why don't you just let the source write the piece? You, why bother to interview them if you're just going to send them template of questions? And I know there are magazines that do it but I don't think it's a good idea. I think all I would add is, you know, I think we all prefer doing in person. The great thing nowadays with the tech is it used to be you had to do them over the phone. Uh, now I have the choice of doing it over the phone and over Zoom. And if I have a choice, I will do it over Zoom since it's the next best thing to doing it in person. So, John, we're answering questions now from the audience. And the question you might want to pick up on, because you probably have a lot of expertise on this, is, Somebody would like to know how the panelists feel about editing quotes. They've always been extremely careful about the quality of their words, except for us, things like that. The experience this person had is when they, the editor said, well, let's edit the quote. So this particular buyer who's asking about how do you feel about being their, your fidelity to their words and actually editing an interview? Well, I think you have to be careful about changing any quote and do it with the speaker. I'll, let me jump in for real quick until we get John back. I was actually having this, and I think I saw Ray Boomhauer in here. I think we were having a conversation about this on Twitter one day, because I'll be generous about, especially when I hear myself talk, I am the king of saying like. I'll say, well, and I was like, and this guy was like, and then he was all, I tend to clutter my own stuff with garbage so I can be very forgiving in, clar in keeping things clarified for clarity, editing out sort of the verbal clutter. Now, you do have to remember the context is king in these sorts of things. If yeah. someone's trying to tell you a story about, you know, the mayor of the town and it's full of ers and uhs and ums, then yeah, I'm going to leave all the ers and ums and uhs in there for that story. But sometimes it's just a matter of clarity. Again, I had Lisa Henson is one who said, uh, I was born, you know, I lived in Southern California my entire life. I'm going to be filled with you knows. Can you please strike those? And of course I did because just for clarity. Anyway, now on the other hand, the interesting one is I had somebody who swore like a sailor constantly. But that voice was so colorful with the F-bomb in there, we left them all in because that voice just jumps off the page for that. Again, this was, I'm writing about Jim Henson and Frank Oz, the F-bomb is the coin of the realm. Do you cut that out because kids might be reading? We didn't, we left it all in and boy, does that voice come off the page. But I'd be interested in hearing how do people feel? Do you bleep it out? Do you put uh, profanity redactive? I don't know, you know, what do people do with that even in the transcript of the book? Claudia? I use profanity. I, I just did an interview in New York Review with John Waters. Um, profanity is delightful. 
so uh, it depends. And also your publication may have standards that you have to abide by. So earlier I said that interviewing is an improvisational form. Well, it really is. Every situation is different. What about off going off the record, folks? How have you handled that and what do you think of it? It's off the record, it's off the record. That's the rule. For instance, if somebody says to me, what I just said is off the record, it isn't off the record. You have to agree ahead of time. So let's talk a little more about how do you handle on the record versus off the record? Well, I believe that if someone says something's off the record, I keep it off the record. Now, it may be very germane to the story. And if they keep on putting everything off the record, I'll leave and say, we can't do this. You can't tell me all these things and then not tell me anything that's printable. But let's say, theoretically, somebody tells you something in a good interview, but somewhere in the middle of it, it's off the record. And it really is important and germane. I might try to talk to them and try to convince them to put it on the record. But if they remain off the record, that's it. Let's go to John because we, we lose you. John, how do you handle on and off the record? I, I tried to find off the record or on background, which is a sort of a whitewash uh, phrase, uh, up front. I say, if you want to go off the record, I think, let me know in advance. And I listen completely to everything off the record. That's where the good stuff can be found. Then I'll try to bring it in from another source. Or I'll call up back later and say, you know, you're telling me this is off the record. There's a, it's a little bit of negotiating that has to go on. But it's always good stuff. The backstage story is what can drive a story. So I don't discourage it. I don't dispute it. But I do explain at the beginning. I say, if you want to go on background for anything, just signal me in advance so I, it's clear. And in the meantime, the tape is, is rolling. It's a little bump in the road, but it's not a big issue. I would never get into a discussion of off the record with them unless they wanted to. I will say one thing. I was, I was interviewing... William Goldman, screenwriter, oh, right. earlier, and I didn't know it, but he had a massive feud with his brother, James Goldman. They did not speak, Bill told me, for 26 years. Well, I didn't know this. I walked into the interview with him, and I'm saying, how does it feel to have two, two great writers in the same family or something? He reaches over. He clicks <laughs> off the tape recorder. He looks me in the eye, and he says, if you mention my brother's name one more time, this interview is over. And then, then he clicked the tape recorder back on. We finally got before John. We got it in, Kitty. I know you wanted the end of that one. Kitty we had several requests for that story. <laughs> Kitty needed the closure, I know. Let me continue with the questions. Um, I'm going to combine two questions that has to do with accuracy. We've heard from several of the people talking about confirming the facts that have been conveyed. Brian, you talked about everybody has a truth. How do you handle that? Do you, uh, another person asks, if you find they said something wrong, like I've interviewed somebody that said they graduated in 79, and I politely said, well, no, you didn't graduate in 78. You know, I mean, I didn't put it that way, but the point is, so how do you handle accuracy in an interview? Do you correct it while going on? Do you correct it afterwards? Do you do, what, what, do you, what do you do with that, Brian? Uh, this is a, a funny one, because I was just talking about this again the other day. Um, and this is a very minor point, but it does get down because it can be revealing. So one of the things I love to ask people about Jim Henson, I would say, tell me how tall he is. And everyone would say, well, oh, God, he had to be 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and somebody would say, I'm 6'2". He so he's he had to be 6'4". He was 6'1". I had a copy of his passport from 1958 to 1976 where he had self-reported that height. 
So I had copies of those and every, and I would always ask that question. So then I could show people, you know, he was six to one and everyone would say that absolutely cannot be true. It cannot be true. And I would show them his passport. I tell that because there's the advantage of doing your research in advance. And then when you get a wrong answer, you, you can use that to your advantage because what I thought was fascinating is the whole, there, it's trust, but verify in the sense that like, I verified that they were wrong, but I had a trust that there was something else going on there. And what was happening is he had a presence. I mean, he was tall and lanky, but he had this presence. He was larger than left in them. They all thought he was so much bigger than he actually was, which I thought was fascinating. So sometimes those mistakes can lead you to something larger about your, literally about your subject. Claudia, how do you handle accuracy? In um, well, I, I, I try to make sure that I'm, I'm accurate in my questions, but sometimes people will correct you and you'll find something very interesting that the correction includes, but there are situations where people are trying to use the interview to slander other people or to settle scores. And you have to be careful about that and make sure that what you're doing isn't being used that way. Uh, sometimes I've had to follow up with more investigation. And I remember one very important Playboy interview that I did. And the Playboy interviews involve investing a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I went to California to interview a movie star. And he was clearly trying to use this forum to get even with another actor. And we ended up not running it. I ended up saying that I did not feel comfortable with this and I would not feel comfortable if this went on over my name. So it didn't run. And, you know, it cost me a lot. I mean, got a kill fee for my work, but I certainly didn't want to be party to anything like that. Um, again, I'm trying to mirror the questions I'm getting. And um, I think we need to have a little more conversation about the notion of permissions because we're getting different comments. Several people have run into the publisher demanding releases from interview subjects. So what I'd like to ask each of you is in your experience, when you're doing an interview for use in publication at some point, do you use a release with the subject? When do you bring it up? Do you uh, do it afterwards? Do you do it before? For instance, one of the things I do was, um, if it's going to be a certain interviews, I sometimes start the tape recorder and I say, I'm Jamie McGrath Morris. I'm sitting down with Brian J. Jones on May 12th, or whatever today is, 14th, 15th, to do an interview for my forthcoming book on Great Chefs of Corrales. And then we begin. That way I have it also on tape. So anyway, maybe I'm overly cautious, but let's hear from both of you. What do you do about permissions and releases? I only ever use them on one book. Um, like I said, after the, that one, I, I did do it, and my publisher didn't even ask for them. Now, I'm not with an academic press, and I know the standards are slightly different, but I, I was not even asked for them. With the Jim Henson biography, I did it more out of a courtesy. And again, partly because I was in that sort of nether world where it was straddling the line between famous and not famous. Um, some of them you know, were known and not, but I, and so I think there was a comfort level if I would say, and I usually did it at the beginning. Um, I would say, you know, and when I'm done, of course, and I will have this transcribed and you'll receive a copy of that and with an approval sheet. And most of them were like, oh, okay, whatever, yeah, that's fine. So it, it didn't really ever become an issue. I only had to wait on one of them. And I think it was just because they were busy. I mean, they actually just sent it back to me. And, and it was, uh, Sinatra told me not to name drop, but it was Frank Oz. And he actually sent me a business, a, a card of his and said from the desk of Frank Oz. And he wrote, here you go. 
Frank. And I actually framed that card <laughs> and hung it up. Um, but he was the last one, but he didn't strike anything. I mean, he just, you know, he signed off of it and sent it back. So, so it was never really an issue with me. So um, like I said, I did it on that book and I've done two more since then. And I've never gone back to using clearances since then. John, we're talking about permissions and releases because we've had quite a few questions about them. So the question I asked the panelists is, have you used releases or permissions or whatever you want to call them? Do you do it at the beginning? Do you do it at the end? And what are some of the terms? When you're doing a biography, you do it at the beginning of a you know, key interview, key sources. You may have to do some backtracking. And uh, this is usually steered along by the legal department and in the vetting process. So there's not a lot of decision-making along the way. It's somewhat situational. As I said earlier, most interviews with sort of normal people, not celebrities or people who are protective of an image, it's just a, an understanding at the start and it carries through. And then I use a transcript as a document and everyone signs off on that. That's what, that's what we're going to do. I did run into one episode it might be a little bit enlightening on this topic. I had a long interview with a screenwriter who gave some very, very good analysis, backstage information on a, uh, a couple of directors who are well-known, uh, Hitchcock being one of them. And uh, the interview was moving along fine, but he had, this, this screenwriter had control. He had permission because it was to be part of a book called Craft of the Screenwriter. And toward the very end, as we were almost ready to start pr production on the book, he called me frantically and said he had to make some changes on, in the transcript. I said, what are they? And we went through it on the phone. Of course, he took a lot of the stuff out about Hitchcock. And it was really good, insightful stuff. But he said two things. He says, once I was going through a very bad phase with Hitch, and secondly, I was on medications. And so he had all the excuses lined up. And he was, he was kind of you know, saying, hey, come on. He didn't want to say, you must do this. So we agreeably tightened and deleted and went along with a final version that he was okay with. That was a few years ago. Hitch is gone. The screenwriter is gone. I sit on that information now and I, I say, hmm, this is insightful. <laughs> I'm often surprised that biographies come out and people I've done interviews with and I don't hear from the biographer. I did Patty Chayefsky's last interview. Never heard from the biographer. Could have took some stuff out of the files that <laughs> would have been helpful. I think writers sometimes overlook other writers as great sources. And there's always, always a lot of stuff on the editing floor. And if someone has, is no longer on the premises, is, is gone. I think you can look at that information. Well, John's point is really a good one because I think we've, at least I've experienced that. Writers are often not called on, but they have a lot of stuff on the cutting floor. In the case of one book I wrote, a previous biographer had donated all his files to a, a library and I found them useful. I had that problem too, Jamie, real quick. Um, with When I was writing about Dr. Seuss, some of the archival material had been embargoed, not the right word, but they weren't giving it to me. Um, I got in touch with another Seuss biographer who was like, I took great notes on that when I was in the archives. I'm happy to send them to you and sent me scans of all his notes that he'd taken off of this material in the archives. So yeah, lean on each other, biographers, because you'll be surprised what we all have. And as we all know, we love to share research for the most part. So. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have an instant secondary figure coming through your biography and you read a biography about that, I'd call up the writer. They often have wonderful insights to share. 
Um, we've, we've got 60 seconds left. We're coming to the end. Um, so I'm going to ask Claudia and Brian for one single useful tip. If you had only one thing to say to somebody before they went off to do an interview, what would that be? The thing that makes an interview successful, unlike other kinds of journalism, is you front loaded. So the most important part of it is what you do before you ever enter the room. Come in fully prepared and be prepared to move off your preparation because you might be wrong and you might be astonished. That's what you're looking for. Uh, I think my one bit of advice, and this encompasses everything we talked about preparation and so on, but I would say trust your instincts. You go in prepared. You've done your homework. You know your subject. You know a lot about the people you're talking to. You've probably been talking with other people. You know your subject probably as well as anybody by a certain point. So when you go in there, um, trust your instinct and don't be afraid to roll with it. And as, as Claudia's saying, let it go off the rails and go with them sometimes. But just just trust your instinct. If something sounds wrong to you, it might be. Uh, you know, you've got the information. So trust your instincts. These are great suggestions. Um, bio usually meets in person. And when we spill out of this room, we'd usually go for a drink and we'd get some more questions answered. We can't do that. And I just want to emphasize that most bio members just love talking. So if there's a question you didn't get answered today, ask it of me, ask it of Brian, Claudia, somebody, we're out there for you. Uh, I took notes. I learned a lot and I hope the rest of you did. And I want to thank Claudia, Brian, and uh, John. John can't hear me thanking him, but thanks for <laughs> Poor John. And we did get to the end of the uh, Goldman story, which was terrific. So thank you all. And uh, we'll see you in the next room sometime. You just heard highlights from the panel discussion, The Art of Interviewing, from BIO's annual conference held virtually in May 2021. It featured moderator James McGrath Morris with panelists John Brady, Claudia Dreyfus, and Brian J. Jones. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. Bye.